Scripture lesson today comes from the gospel, the good news, according to Mark chapter 8. Let's share in God's good word together. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. You are the Messiah. In other places in the Bible, it says you are the Christ. Messiah is Hebrew. Christ is Greek. It's the same thing. It is the long-awaited one. It is the Son of God. It is God's chosen. It is the one that has come to make things right. And boy, did they need it. They were under Roman occupation. It was brutal. They were taxed over and over again for Roman roads and everything that Rome wanted to do. You would be reminded that Rome is all the way over in Italy. It's not even close. These folks aren't seeing the joys of all their taxation. They're simply under the boot of Rome. And it's a difficult time. And so um, as we look at this time, it is remarkable that Jesus calls... And he is the Messiah. And he is not setting them free for all kinds of of military victories. It's a call to die. A call to pick up their cross and to follow him. And they didn't know what to do with that. They didn't understand it. And I don't believe they probably wanted that any more than we want that today. And so we come to the third week in the Gospel of Mark. We're we're working through the Gospel of Mark this month. And so we are going to look at chapters 8 through 10 today. So if if you're here for the first time, welcome. We're glad you're here. Uh, But let me catch us up real quickly. Uh, Mark, we know, is the shortest and the first gospel written in roughly 70 AD. And and this is following the destruction of Jerusalem. We have this uprising among the Jews against this occupying force. And Rome, it takes them a little while to get everybody over. But when they do, it is awful. They, They just are crushed. They burned Jerusalem to the ground, the temple included. So where they used to see God, it's gone. Where they used to gather as family, that's gone. Wherever they thought their hope was, it was gone. Decimated, fully gone by the Roman Empire. And it is into this context, into this dark, hard, brutal, bewildered life that Mark writes these incredible words. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That Jesus has come. And he says, the kingdom of God is at hand because I'm here where I am, the kingdom is. The Messiah has come. And it is mind-blowing. They know they need it, but they don't know what to do with this quite yet. And so Mark's gospel, in the middle of this terrible time, says, this is good news. I've got good news for you. Hold on. And then if you flash forward to the end of Revelation and and the end of our story, the end is the actual establishment of this kingdom of Jesus, the Messiah, where nothing is missing, nothing is broken. It is shalom lived out. And where God rules, where what God wants done is actually done. As Jesus walked the earth and sometimes here in your own life and how it will be eternally one day. But from the beginning of the good news where Jesus shows up, To the end where Jesus rules completely, we have the middle, which is where we live. And there's suffering here and in the time of Jesus. That hasn't changed. When we're in the in-between time, things are hard. Things are hard. 
Um, I often think of um, these sorts of things uh, in terms of pregnancy, whether it's, um, you know, regardless of the child, there's the excitement of the beginning and there's the excitement of the delivery. Nobody wants to talk about the nine months in between. It's quite a process. Important, necessary, but I'm told not a lot of fun from time to time. And so we are looking at what it is to follow Jesus, really. It's a beginner's guide to following Jesus. Mark lays it out in 16 short chapters. And what we find in the Gospel of Mark is that, first of all, it won't be easy. Actually, most of the people, even in Jesus' hometown, they failed to honor him. They would not recognize him. He was just, you know, Mary's boy, Joseph's boy. We know him. He works over in the carpentry shop. And, and then the political and religious leaders, they feared him. They'd never known anybody like him. And they feared him so much that they would actually hand him over to the Roman authorities for them to kill him. They, they, didn't, they didn't know what to do. They, he was messing with the entire social structure where the poor were lifted up and the rich were held to account. And nobody had ever seen anybody teach the way Jesus taught. And so Jesus says, into this context, if you want to follow me, this is a dangerous and hard life. The first thing you need to know is that you need to travel with a buddy. You need a buddy. Everybody needs a buddy. And this is super important. And we, we believe that around here. So, and, and you might say, well, why does Acts 2 always do ministry in twos? Because Jesus says so. That's what he says. That's how you do it. He called the 12 and he began to send them out how? Two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. So friends, if you're going to go fight the demons, you might want a buddy. Right? That's not something you want to do on your own. You, you want community around you. That's the way Jesus does it. And we know that a companion then, it makes you less vulnerable to assault. It can help you with disappointments. Because in ministry, you always have disappointments. And when things don't go as planned. And if you've ever been helping someone in need, you know it never goes as planned. It might have gotten close to planned, but never as planned. It's just not the way life works. You know, you, you can't make plans for other people's lives and have it fulfilled the way you thought. This doesn't work that way. So to follow Jesus then is to find ourselves face to face with the needs of the world and the evils of the world, with things that are too big for us, which is why we have Jesus in the middle of it, because we, we don't claim that we can handle everything by ourselves. And, and to follow Jesus brings you face to face with those who are sick, those who are hurting, those who are hungry, as it always has. And as Zan Holmes said last week, he said, if you haven't seen the devil face to face, you might just be walking in the same direction. So as, as Dr. Elaine Heath writes it, and, and I hope you'll say this with me because I think she encapsulates the first two weeks perfectly. Say this with me. Show up, pay attention, cooperate with God, and release the outcome. That's what it is to follow Jesus. That's it. Show up, pay attention to what God's doing, cooperate with what God's doing. And then release the outcome. Because it's not yours anyway. Right? This is God's church. Your life is God's life in you. God has given you life. What you do with that life then is your gift back to God. Your way of saying thank you for the life that you've been given. And so in, around here and in Disciple Bible Study, those of you who've been through this with me, we always have three questions. The first question is, what does this text tell us about God? Right? The second question is, what does this text tell us about us, humanity? And the third question is always, what does this text tell us about the relationship between God and humanity? And so we start with, who is Jesus? Who is God? And, and, and this, is, this was very unexpected. In a moment of incredible insight and clarity, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
And, and so in those days, uh, you may notice this in the Bible, that when angels visit, people aren't always sure if it's an angel or if it's a person. And, and so there was this idea that someone might actually be Elijah or someone actually might be Moses, even if they didn't look exactly like them, or they might actually be John the Baptist. That's just the way they thought about spirits and people and, and moving through the earth. And so Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? I know some people say, think that I'm Elijah. I know that some people think that I'm, you know, John the Baptist. But who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah, the Christ. Wow. Dr. Amy Jill Levine, we're using um, one of her texts. Um, that's our primary text for this sermon series uh, outside the Bible. And she says, you know, when it comes to Peter, he has the right title, but the wrong job description. Right? He's right that he's the Messiah, but he doesn't understand this Messiahship. And, and to be fair, no one did. Right? They look at Jesus, and he can heal the sick. He can exercise demons. He can control the weather. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. I must suffer and die. And they don't know what to do with that. And to be fair, I'm not sure we do yet either. So Jesus goes on and says, no, no, no. Yes, I am the Messiah, but not like that. As a matter of fact, I'm going to die. And in three days, I'm going to be resurrected. And they really didn't know what to do with that. So in Mark chapter 8, it says, Then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man, a name that he uses for himself, must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be, say with me, killed. Nobody thought that's what Messiahship meant. And after three days, do what? Rise again, right? That's our faith. Rise again. And he said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Not celebrate that. Not like, wow, that's brave. Not that's courageous. Not that brings eternal life. But no. I wonder how many times Jesus has begun to talk to you about suffering or death or something really hard in your life. And you just were like, no. You see, the idea that the Messiah was to suffer was in complete contrast to Jewish expectation. And to be fair to all expectation. If you talked about Messiahship, if you talked about Christ, you, you were talking about kicking butt and taking names. Right. Not laying down and die. That just, it was just, uh, just about the opposite. And so, what does Jesus do? He turns to te- Peter, and, and he doesn't, you know, you might say, well, this is great. He's, he knows exactly, and thank you for trying to save me from, you know, this really terrible thing that's going to happen because I'm choosing it, because I am the Messiah. I'm doing this for the salvation of the world. No, no, no. Jesus turns and looks at his disciples and he rebukes Peter. And he says, say it with me, get behind me, Satan, not a compliment. (laughs) Right? For you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Man, is that contemporary? Right? Our struggle isn't that we don't know what Jesus wants us to do. It's that we have our mind on our lives. And we want Jesus to help us with our lives. And Jesus called us, come and die. Follow me. So Jesus, rather than celebrating that Peter was trying to help him out of his hard time, Jesus actually is being tempted by the same thing that he was tempted with by the devil in the wilderness. It's the same thing. An easy life. Jesus, you don't want to do that. You don't have to do that. Peter's actually using very similar words to the devil himself. 
which is why Jesus says that. If you look back in the Gospel of Matthew and you, and you look at the temptation story, you find this. The devil took Jesus to a very high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world, their splendor, and he says to him, all these I will give you. You can have it all, Jesus, if you'll simply fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, say with me, away with you, Satan. No, I'm not here for an easy life. I'm not here to rule over everyone. That's not, that's not what I've come to do. That's not my Messiahship. Worship the Lord your God and serve only him, which is what Jesus is doing in perfect obedience to the Father. So Jesus said that his followers serve others instead of expecting others to serve them. You see that? The temptation is always for other people to serve you. Sit back, relax, easy street, you know, everything that you want brought in. You don't even have to go out anymore. You just hit your phone. I want some food. Here's the food. I want a movie. Here's your movie. Uh, I want this brought to me. Bring it to me. Doesn't that sound nice? It's always sounded nice. It's always sounded nice. But that's not the call of those who follow Jesus. Mark 8 says this. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple, say it with me, must deny themselves. Take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. And then you come to this haunting line. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? What good is it for you to have everything you ever wanted? Every food, the right home, the right address, the right people, the the right places the right box seats at this thing, the right clothing, if it shrivels up your soul, that for all eternity, you will not be able to hide because your soul is the only thing that lasts forever. Everything else passes away. Everything else becomes dust. But your soul, Jesus, you gotta, you got to take care of that soul because that's the only thing that lasts. And the wise person does not forfeit their soul for anything. Not for anything. So when Jesus says deny yourself, he means for us to renounce self-centeredness and replace it with God-centeredness. Or you might even say other-centeredness because that's what Jesus did. He was always serving others, seeing others, paying attention to others. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the, the great German Lutheran pastor during World War II, He says it quite succinctly. He says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. All of it. That's what it is to follow Jesus. Always has been. All of the disciples except John were martyred for their faith. And John on the island of Patmos um, being basically imprisoned on that island. It cost us everything, friends. And so as they they just, they weren't hearing it. They weren't hearing it. They, They were like, nope, no, no. You know, it's just confused. You know, we find this over and over in the Bible. When, and and this, is, this is not in the original sermon, so this is free to you. So when the, when the young man comes to Jesus and he says, uh, you know, what's the greatest commandment? He's not really asking. He knows them. Matter of fact, he goes on and tells Jesus what they are. Because he's not really asking. And, and the other young man, when he says, who's my neighbor? He's not asking. They know the answers, but aren't we good at asking questions that don't have answers to them so we don't have to do what we already know we have to do? That's all that's going on there and here. 
So Jesus says, oh, okay, so you're not hearing me yet? Let me show you. Let me show you. He's all the time doing show and tell. All the time. So you'll remember that Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. Right. And six days later, Jesus says, oh, you want to see this? You want to see what Messiahship looks like? It looks like this. I told you that I'm going to be killed and rise on the third day. You want to see what that resurrection body looks like? Let me show you. So he takes Peter, James, and John, and he leads them up the mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured, transformed, metamorphosized to his post-resurrection body. So that they could see he really is the Messiah. And his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And if that weren't enough, dazzling bright, there appears with him Elijah, who's been dead 700 years, and Moses, who's been dead 1,300 years. And they're having a conversation. They're talking with Jesus. Somebody will be like, hmm, this is not normal. Maybe he is the Messiah. Yeah. And in the ancient world, just know that white clothing, it was unattainable, except for those incredibly wealthy who never went outside. It's kind of like painting your house white in Oklahoma. Right? It's, only, it's going to be white for a day. And it's going to be pink next year, right? at least on the west side. That's just how it is. Nobody saw white clothing in the ancient world. It was not possible. And so, well, well, so what's the big deal about Moses? What's the big deal about Elijah? Well, Moses predicted the coming of a prophet like Jesus. So when they see Moses, they're like, oh, this must be the Messiah. And Elijah is the forerunner of the Messianic age. Right? So when you see Elijah, oh, the, the Messiah must be right behind him. That was the expectation. And so here's Jesus in, in this resurrected, non-earthly you know, body. Right? And he is proving exactly what he just said. I am the Messiah. That's right. And this is what it looks like. Both in terms of identity and the prediction of his death and resurrection. He's showing them up on the mountain. Show and tell. Always doing that. Show and tell. Show and tell. So then a cloud comes to that mountain. And from the cloud there comes a voice. In case you missed it with Elijah, Moses, and the you know, shining lights. God says what he said at his baptism. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. And suddenly when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore. Only Jesus. Poof. And the vision is over. It's time to go back down. You see, Dr. Levine says clearly that the disciples knew Jesus was more than human. Of course they did. He can walk on water. He can raise the dead. It is a foretaste of what our resurrected bodies will be. And I love the way she writes this. She says, you know, when when they're looking at Jesus, when they're looking at our resurrection bodies, it's still us. It's still recognizable, but shining in divinity. A perfected, glowing, beautiful, spiritual body radiates before them. That's who Jesus is. So then we have to ask the question, well, if that's Jesus, if that's God, who are we? Who are we? We, friends, are much like the disciples. We don't get it. That's why they're called disciples. Get it? Right? So they get down the mountain. And what happens? Life happens. Just what they had escaped from with all the people and all the feeding, the feeding of the 5,000 with just a few loaves and a few fish, the feeding of the 4,000, same thing again, people left and right, always needing Jesus. And so they get down off the mountain and immediately they bring a boy to him. And when the spirit saw him uh, that was inside the boy, it immediately convulsed him. Throws him on the ground, rolls about, foams at the mouth. This is, this is a dangerous and terrible situation. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And the father said, well, from childhood. It's often actually even cost him into a fire and into the water to destroy him. 
And then this man asked a question that is eternally relevant. It's our question. Jesus, having just glowed at the top of a mountain, comes down and the man has the audacity to say, well, you know, Jesus, if you're able, if you might, if you could, if you might just remember me, if you're able to do anything, have pity on us, help us. And Jesus said to him, if you're able, all things can be done for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out, say it with me, I believe, help my unbelief. Isn't that our prayer? And thank God it's enough. It is enough. God will take what little belief we have, what little faith we have, what little step we will take, and he will work a miracle with it. That's who Jesus is. Whether it's loaves of bread or a bit of faith. You see, because this is important, friends, because we live down in the real world, don't we? Where bad things happen that we cannot control and we do not understand. I mean, just stuff just happens in our lives. And some of it's of our own making and some of it is not. We look at the world and it is broken beyond our control. And we don't know what to do about it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the the German theologian, during World War II, he writes, Only Jesus Christ, who bids us follow him, knows the journey's end. We're in this middle time. Jesus alone knows the end. But we do know that it will be a road of boundless mercy. Discipleship means joy, he says. We, We need to not misunderstand this. To be with Jesus, to follow him in our obedience, that's actual joy. It's life itself. It is salvation, according to John, to know the Father. To live with him eternally. You see, Jesus takes whatever little we have and makes miracles happen. That's who the Messiah is. And so, he takes that little belief of the Father. I believe. Help my unbelief. And what does Jesus do? He takes the boy by the hand. He lifts him up. He's able to stand. That's the Messiah. And then, you know, we're all back on page. It's like, oh, yeah. I mean, good stuff. You know, healings, food, yay. And Jesus goes, no, hold on a minute. I wasn't kidding about my death and my resurrection. So he has to tell him a second time. Dallas Willard would say, friends, and I know this sounds like heresy, but if it only says something once in the Bible, don't pay attention to it. Really, don't. That's where all the weird stuff comes from, right? But if it says it like three or more times, you better pay attention. Particularly if Jesus says it. And you're going to see that he's going to predict his death three times in the Gospel of Mark, back to back to back. So he was teaching his disciples, and he said to them, the Son of Man, a name he uses for himself, is to be betrayed. He's adding to the story now. He's making it bigger into human hands. And they will, say it with me, kill him. And three days after being killed, he will rise again, right? And his followers did not understand, and they were afraid to ask Jesus about it. They didn't want to know. Haven't you ever been in that moment where you find yourself not praying as often? And it's not because you don't know what you're supposed to do. It's just that you know if you pray, God will tell you what you know you don't want to do. That's where they were. They, they, they kind of had a sense of where it was going, and they didn't want to even talk about it. Because they did not understand what he was saying, and they were afraid even to ask him. Even to bring up this situation. And while Jesus was explaining his suffering, death, and resurrection, his followers are arguing I mean, he's telling them, guys, this is what's going to happen to me. And what are they doing? They're jawing each other about nonsense. They come to Capernaum, 
you know, the top part of Galilee. And when Jesus was in the house, he asked them, hey, guys, what are you arguing about on the way? He knew. But they were what? Silent. Yeah, they didn't talk about that either. For on the way, they had argued with one another about what? Who was the greatest? Are you kidding me? It's like this. You gather your kids around and you tell them you have cancer and you're not going to live past the year. And they want to know who's getting what. That's what's going on here. And Jesus again, show and tell. So he sits down. He calls the 12. He says, come here, boys. Whoever wants to be first must be what? Last. And servant of all. Then he takes a little child, puts it among them, and taking it in his arms, he says to them, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. And so he's taking a child. Now, you have to understand the culture then is the, about the opposite of culture now. In Edmund, we are child-centered. They were child-dismissive. This is a child who can do nothing for you. They're not worth anything, and you can cast them aside. And he says, if you want to be great, then you have to become like me and this child, where you welcome them, where you help others who have no ability to help you back, where you bless others who do not have the ability to bless you back, where you invest in others who will never show you a return. This is what it is. The last is first, and the first is last. I think one of the better examples um, in the last 200 years um, is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who you all hear me quote regularly, but I want you to know why. Bonhoeffer was born February 4th, 1906, son of a university professor. He was raised with three brothers, twin sisters, and three more sisters. He had eight siblings in Berlin, Germany. And what marked him, what people really knew him for, was his unselfishness and his preparedness to help others all the way to self-sacrifice. It would include his death. And at the age of 24, he actually, at the age, our youngest is 24, he became a lecturer in systematic theology in Berlin. He also came to America, studied at uh, Union Theological Seminary in New York. And Bonhoeffer was one of the few who quickly understood, even before Hitler came to power, that nationalism would not work. That it was a brutal power grab to make history by military strength and power and by human strength and power without God. Founded on the strength of man alone, even if the Germans needed to use God's name to get things done, which they did often. And in 1939, American friends actually got him out of Germany to save his life. But soon he felt that he could not stay in America. That he had to return to his oppressed and persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ there in Germany. And that he would not desert them at a time that they needed him most. He's picking up his cross. It was not a surprise to him that he was arrested by the Gestapo in the house of his parents on April 5th, 1943. Yet, even in prison, his goodness and his unselfishness and his courage, it inspired the guards around him. So much so, actually, that at night, when they would go to lock him in his cell, they would apologize to him for having to lock his door because they knew they didn't need to. He had come back on his own anyway. So while in prison, Bonhoeffer ministered to the sick of his fellow prisoners. And in October 1944, catch this, he had been in prison now 
And his friends made an attempt to get him out to safety. He had lots of power around him, friends. But Bonhoeffer decided to stay, to remain in prison in order not to endanger the other prisoners around him. He knew it could be costly or even deadly for those around him, so he chose to stay. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was then executed by special order at the concentration camp at Flossenburg on April 9, 1945, just a few days before it was liberated by the Allies. But I want you to know this. Somebody who actually understands discipleship, he considered the self-righteousness of so many Christians, the complacency of so many Christians, as great sins against the Holy Spirit that we need to take seriously. Bonhoeffer realized that nothing less than a full return of Christians denying ourselves, picking them up across, serving others, would save Germany or save our world today. Jesus predicts his suffering and his death and his resurrection for a third time. Now in more detail in chapter 10. Chapter 8, 9, 10. So he takes the 12 aside again. He begins to tell them what was going to happen to him. See, we're going up to Jerusalem. He tells you the place. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priest and the scribes. They will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him. They will spit on him. They will flog him. And they will kill him. It's fully orbed now. In case you missed it the first time or second time, there's no mistaking it now. And after three days, he will, say it with me, rise again. This is good news. Jesus says this plainly, and it's in the midst of this God's self-giving that the human condition is one of self-taking and self-centeredness. Jesus is pouring out his heart and his life to his closest friends, and what is going on in the background? James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they come forward to Jesus, and they say to him, hey, teacher, we want you to do us a favor. These sto- I'm, I'm not flashing forward in the Bible. These are connected. Jesus says, well, okay, what is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. (laughs) Well, if you're going to die, how does that affect us? You do see how gross that is. I wonder if we see the corollary when we use Jesus' resurrection as a way for us to do what we want to in this life. Jesus attempts to correct them gently. He really does. But it's their pride and their arrogance that betray their understanding. They can't even understand them because they're so focused on themselves. And so Jesus says to them, guys, 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 come on. He's like, you don't even know what you're, what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized? And they replied, say with me, we're able. I mean... If I'm finishing this, like, fill in the blank, the next slide says, and Jesus punched him in the face. <laughs> and Jesus says to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. And so what, what happens When the Lord is trying to lead us and we're only concerned about our status and position and our wealth and our power, what happens? Well, the result, of course, is anger and division, as it should be. And it's infighting among the followers of Jesus then and now. So when the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. Well, of course, because they were way out of line. 
They should have been angry with them. They were so off page. You see, Jesus says the answer is to serve others in the same way that he came to serve others and to give his life to many. And in case you've kind of missed the underlying piece here, if you're sitting in this room today and you think the church is supposed to be serving you, you have it exactly backwards. Exactly backwards. We are here totally collectively to serve the world. That's why we exist. To bless others. That's why we put together blessing bags between services. That's why we give more than $100,000 away every year to the poor, the needy, the hurting, those who are in prison, those who serve them and bless them, those who need to, whose parents are incarcerated. We do this always. Not, it's not for us. We don't give so that we can be served ourselves. That's gross. You can see it. How terrible that is. So Jesus called them and he said to them, you know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lorded over them. It's like, dudes, you don't want to be in charge. It, it's, it just leads to corruption. And their great ones are tyrants over them. You don't want to be like that. But it's not so among you. Not us. Why? Say it with me. Whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. That's our call. That's our job. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. Last. For the Son of Man, Jesus says, himself came not to be served. Say it with me. But to serve. And to give his life a ransom for many for the world. So Bonhoeffer would say it like this. The response of the disciple is an act of obedience. Whatever that is. Not a confession of faith in Jesus. You are not a Christian because you can say he's Jesus, he's Lord. You are a Christian if you follow him. Which is why every time people join the church, I say, do you want to follow Jesus? And if the answer is yes, you're going to do very well here because that's the only thing we care about. And if you're like, no, 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 I'm really interested in the children's program, or I'm really interested in the youth group, or I'm really interested in business contacts, I'm really interested in the stained glass, that's a joke, we have none. You know, (laughs) that never works. Because we don't care about any of that. We care about children and youth, yes. But only to help them follow Jesus. Not for them just to hang out. It's to follow Jesus. So your action step today, friends. What in you needs to die? We all have something. What is it that you have not yet given up to Jesus? You might, you might be 95% there. The whole world may think you're absolutely perfect and great, but you know in your heart there's 5% that you have not turned over. You just haven't. Jesus wants to talk to you about it. You're like, mm-mm, I'm not talking to you about that. What in you needs to die in order to serve others in joyful obedience? Not in hard hardness, in joyful obedience. To say, okay, God, it's yours. You have all of me now. You have all of me, not some of me. You have all of me. Whatever that is, friends, give it to him. Give it to Jesus to handle for you because you know you can't handle it on your own. We've been trying for years and years and years. So just go ahead and give it to him. And, and as a way of obedience to say, yes, Jesus, you have all of me. Go and serve someone that you would rather not serve. Outside your family, go bless them. Just go bless somebody. Because that's who Jesus calls us to be, that we would come and die to ourselves and live for him always. In Jesus' beautiful and righteous and powerful name. Amen? Let's pray the prayer he taught us to pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.